things that really made me really effective going from zero to one are just not going to be the things that make that help the business overall when we're going from like one to 100. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Each year in America, $400 billion is given through philanthropy, a phenomenal amount of money. Today, my guest, Gary Manglet, the co-founder of the Giving Platform Instrumental, along with her partner, Angela Breeren, worked out that they could help smooth the transfer of funds by creating a software product that would help institutions to give better, nonprofits to access crucial funds in a more easy way. This test product follows on from a previous company that she had sold to Airbnb. Enjoy the episode. I certainly enjoyed my conversation. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. Enjoy. Gary Manglick, welcome to Purposey. Thanks for having me. You're the CEO and founder of Instrumental. What's its mission? What's its vision? Yeah, Instrumental's um, mission is to be a force multiplier on the nonprofit sector ability to create impact by bringing our unique flavor of product and customer obsession to the space, to the technology in the space. And our kind of short-term vision is to define and create the institutional fundraising experience for nonprofits. That's where we've chosen to start. But really, um, our mission is to just create an impact in the space through technology. And so once we feel like, you know, moving on from the institutional fundraising world makes sense, we will do that. And who's your typical client and how is it useful to that client? Yeah, we work with nonprofits of all sizes. I would say um, once you get to above a couple hundred thousand in revenue, you, you, you'll be more in our sweet spot as a nonprofit. And we help non- nonprofits with all things grants, finding, managing, tracking their grants. And so if you are, if you have an established grants process and you're looking to be more efficient and effective and strategic um, and to have a tool to like create a system to help you get out more applications and and overall, um, like I said, be more strategic than we're a good fit. Or if you're an organization that is thinking about establishing a grants process and you want a tool to help you be efficient with that and and help you get your, um, get the momentum rolling more quickly, Instrumental is a good fit for you as well. Fantastic. So based in the uh, Bay Area, San Francisco, how big is the team? What sort of um, scale is it? And and the audience that I have, how can they get a feel for the, the business structured? Yeah, we are a team of about 20 full-time people, and then we have a number of contractors and consultants and and part-time folks helping us, so maybe a team of like 30 to 40 overall. And we, we serve over 2,000 nonprofit customers today, and these nonprofits are mostly based in the U.S. Um, as we focus on funders based in the U.S., uh, but they're working all, in all different kinds of spaces. So it could be healthcare or health, you know, animal welfare, any sort of category, basically. And you are a for-profit, for-purpose business. Those two things are, are, are chief of mind. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Is it profitable in terms of um, dollars in, in, in the bank or are you in a growing phase? I guess both. We we are, we do run the company profitably, or I should say closer to break even, where we reinvest essentially all of the money that we make back into the business so that we can continue to grow. And you're part of the Y Combinator? That's right. Yeah, we went through Y Combinator in 2016. We raised some money out of that demo day. And since then, we've chosen to operate more profitably and focus less on raising external capital and more on just making sure we have a sustainable business. That's a huge, um, so you're a year old at that point. So you started in 2015 and, and we're admitted into the Y Combinator a year later. 
that's a huge achievement because you were amongst um, some incredible startups. Thanks. Yeah, we are. Um, that was an incredible time, and we are still friends with a lot of our batchmates, and they've gone on to do amazing things. How hard is the process? To, if you can take yourself back to 2015, 16, and um, how the opportunity to come about, and how, how, what the process look like? Yeah, it's quite a process. Uh, we we went through an experimental version of Y Combinator that they ran for three batches first, and then we went through the core YC batch, which is like you know the standard YC batch. And so we initially, when we applied, we were we were pretty early stage. And so they said that they were trying out this experiment. They called it the YC Fellowship. And it was for earlier stage companies. And that was actually like mostly remote. And so we we did that for a couple of months. And then they got to know us. And then we went through the normal YC batch. Uh, we applied for the normal YC batch and we got in. And the process is pretty interesting. There, There's a lot of emphasis on the actual application. So in some ways, it's like very similar to you know, grant application, uh, you have to be able to clearly articulate what the company is going to do, what's unique about the company, like what is your unique insight, and then how you're going to actually execute on it. Do you have the capabilities to actually execute on it? And then if you make it through that phase, that's like the biggest hurdle to get through is actually having um, your application be um, approved so that you can move on to the next stage. Then it's a 10-minute interview. So they will actually fly in uh, companies from all over the world, or at least they used to at that time, for a 10-minute interview with a panel of, I think, three to four YC partners. And you basically, those 10 minutes go by, like, in 10 seconds, and you're sweating the whole time, you don't know exactly what's going on, and you leave, and typically everyone thinks that they've done a terrible job. And if you make it through, you'll get a call later that evening from one of the YC partners, and if you don't make it through, then you'll get an email. So the whole day, the whole like rest of the day, you're like just glued to your phone. And luckily we got a phone call both times um, from the YC partner that was basically like our champion. Wonderful. And do you remember how much preparation you put in for that? Oh, oh, quite a lot. Yeah. We, um, you know, spent a lot of time on the application itself. And then for those, for those mock, for those interviews, we did a ton of mock interviews. You know, we were at that time, three co-founders going in. So we made sure that we all knew all of our different metrics and our plans like the back of our hand. We had a plan for how we were going to break down questions amongst the team, amongst our team, who's going to answer what kind of questions. So a lot of intense preparation. Mm. And changing tap for a bit, um, going back to looking at the start of your life. So you, you're in California now, but actually, do you grow up in uh, New York City? Yeah, I grew up right outside New York in a county called Westchester. Um, but actually, even before that, I actually lived in California. So I lived in LA until about fourth grade and then moved to New York and always kept California near and dear to my heart. And then after college, uh, moved back to California. Uh-huh. And the reason for the move to, from California, what, what was behind that? From California to New York. For originally, originally yeah. Originally, it was my, uh, just my parents' work. What, what, did they, what was work doing for them at that time? My mom is a doctor, and so she had gotten her residency in New York. And uh, how did you find New York as a bit of a um, shock to the system, was it? Oh, yeah, it was, especially as a fourth grader. I was... Um, you're used to wearing shorts at all the, you know, at all times of the year, and just you know, interested in being outdoors. And um, I would wear shorts to school, and my teacher would you know tell me to wear pants the next day. And I was just like very into sports and basketball, and just like playing a lot. And um, I feel like something with the transition to New York um, seemed to have an adjustment that I was not very happy with initially. And so, an interest in computer science came about for you. Yeah, that was kind of serendipitous. Um, I 
have always been interested in, I think, technology in general. Um, but when I went to college, I went to NYU, I initially started pre-med. My mom's a doctor, as I mentioned, so that was like her influence for sure. Um, but I would say, to be honest, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my dad is an engineer, so he his encouragement was to try computer science because that was a very practical thing to learn. Um, and so I tried it, and I did well. And so I just kind of kept going. But it wasn't... Um, I was, I would say until I took an entrepreneurship class my last semester senior year and was able to really pair my computer science classes with business, with startups, did I really like enjoy that side of things? Like I really like the application as opposed to computer science for just computer science sake. And what was the sort of conversation in the, in the household? Um, your, your parents sound like high achievers. Did they have sort of a destination in mind for you? Were you living up to expectations at this point? Yeah. So I had an internship my junior year in college and it was at a finance company called BlackRock and I was a software engineering intern there and I had accepted a full-time offer to join them after I graduated. And so after I graduated, I did join them. And then a little while in, I realized that I was having so much fun continuing to work on the startup that I had started uh, my last semester there uh, that I wanted to leave uh, within six weeks. And so that was an interesting conversation with my parents. They, I think, to be honest, did not really understand or that wouldn't be their recommendation. But to give them a ton of credit, they really like supported me ultimately and, you know, told me that, you know, I could do what I, what I wanted to do. And then they, they did like ultimately fully support me. You packed you. So this is the end of 2010, was it? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And had you had siblings um, gone through similar paths or? We were the first to show interest in entrepreneurialism. Yeah, I was the first. I it's my dad's side of the family does have a lot of um, I would say business business owners um, back in India, um, but the tech startup space was pretty new to the pretty new to my family. And leaving BlackRock like that's that's not a small company, right? Huge opportunity. Um, do do you look back and think actually? I would I I had real clear vision of what I wanted, and it wasn't going to deliver or actually didn't really know what BlackRock was fully about or the scale of it? Well, BlackRock has, I think, grown tremendously over the past like 10, 12 years since I graduated. So it was more up and coming when I joined. I mean, it's still, I think it was like the largest asset manager at that time too, but I think it, like the scale has just been like in like very much um, dramatic since I've left, um, since that time. But I think the, you know, the biggest thing with me was I was I was not, in the right place to be like, just like a software engineer. Like I'm not a very good software engineer. <laughs> that should not be the thing that I spend my time doing. So yeah, your pressure's on, I'm, I'm assuming to do something um, worthwhile and interesting next. Was that the start of, of um, your founder story of Fondue? Yeah, exactly. So that, so Fondue was basically an evolution of what I had started with a couple of classmates at NYU my last semester. And tell us about the mission of Fondue and what that was about. That was like an interesting time in New York where the uh, there was like a mobile revolution and a, like a location data like influx, or I would say like a lot a boom in location data that was becoming available through at that time platforms like Foursquare um, and Gowalla. Probably, I'm not sure if you've heard of these companies, but um, we were really interested in using that location data where people were checking in and saying 
I'm here, I'm there to build recommendation systems to help create value for people as they were going about their daily lives. That evolved to becoming more of a social application. So kind of like Yelp, but more of a, um, instead of like long form Yelp reviews, it was more bite-sized restaurant reviews that your friends could leave wherever they went. And then you could open up your phone and you could say, what have my friends reviewed around me? And then choose a restaurant or bar or coffee shop based on their recommendations. And so we had like our own rating system and our own way to leave reviews. And yeah, it was like mostly like a lot of usage in New York and then a lot of usage like around the country. Uh, But we worked on that for two and a half years and then we were acquired by Airbnb. And that's why I moved out to the West Coast. And you started that with those same classmates? Yeah, I started, I would say, I think two of the classmates, two or three, they, they kind of, they kind of petered out the classmates. And then I think by the time we, when we sold the company, we had two of my original classmates. And what did you have to raise in terms of capital to get that off the ground? I think we raised somewhere between five and 600,000. From friends and family? It's like from angel investors. Yeah. And, and friends and family. Do you remember how, what that process was like in terms of suddenly you're finding yourself um, pitching your ideas to to people who are going to put their hard cash into your mission? Yeah, it's pretty wild thinking back on it because I was so young and I was out of school and I really was just pretty new to the startup space because I had just taken this class like a, you know a couple of months ago and I was like thrown into it and I knew that the next step to be able to continue to working continue to work on my idea was going to be to raise money. Um, so it was just like a hustle, you know, talking to everybody that I knew, everybody that they knew, um, learning how to create a compelling pitch and just pitching to everybody that I could, honestly. And we ended up getting funded by a team of investors that really focused on mobile. And we were a mobile first application so that they ended up leading that round. And that was a really great fit for us. But it was super, I would say serendipitous and lucky that we were able to get in front of them. And also like, I was young and they took a huge bet on me. Yeah. But time that mobile was becoming really interesting um, and people were looking for investments in the space, but they saw something in you, some real drive commitment. Do you remember being really clear about what you were trying to achieve or did it evolve over time? It definitely evolved over time. I think the biggest thing that it seemed like we were riding a lot of very compelling waves that people were excited about. So mobile was certainly a wave. And then all this location data was super new. We had never really been able to have, you know, an understanding of where people have like actually physically gone. And so there was an interest in seeing like what new applications are going to be born because of that new data set. Mm. And and was it profitable? What was the income stream from that? I don't think we ever made a single dollar from that um, company. It was all about launching the product and getting a lot of users in the in the hopes that someday we would have enough traction where we would be able to be appealing to to advertisers pretty much. Yeah. And so how did the Airbnb acquisition come about? And do you remember the day you got the call or was it something you pitched to them? How did that, how did that come about? Yeah, it was very much an evolution. And what happened was we were not getting the traction that we wanted with Fondue and we were thinking about pivoting. And we were actually raising money for a new idea. And my investors at the time, some of my investors, they, or I I should say, we actually got an inbound from a potential acquirer. And our investors floated the idea of us 
to consider that conversation alongside other conversations for getting acquired. Um, and, you know, and it's, and it was compelling, not just for the potential of getting acquired, but also to put some pressure on our fundraise uh, to kind of run those both processes in parallel. And so they, our investors connected us to quite a few different potential acquirers. And we basically ran a process kind of similar to fundraising. And with Airbnb, that happened to be more of an initial connection from a friend um, who had gone through a similar process of selling his company uh, and had talked to Airbnb in his process. And so he connected me to Airbnb, and it was um, alongside many other conversations that I was having with other potential acquirers. Um, So we ended up, um, yeah, running that process and and getting uh, close with um, Airbnb and one other company and then ultimately deciding to go with Airbnb. And was it? a life-changing transaction, or actually it was like, you ended up in a really good job with a really good company. What, what was the life change for you from that? Yeah, it was it was life-changing in a lot of ways. Like when I moved out to the Bay and got entrenched in the kind of Bay Area startup world, which was, you know, I'm still here. Um, so it was life-changing in that way. And then I, and then we did, the transaction was in, in equity in, you know, as well as like getting paid to work there, uh, which was, which was great as well. But most of the value came from equity and Airbnb has done very well since then. And so that was, um, you know, it's not like I'm never going to have to work again, but it was, it was definitely meaningful. And did you have a sense, because you were really young, did you have a sense that actually it might be quite good to, to work for people for a period of time and continue to learn? Or what was your sort of attitude like at that point? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say that I was really naive (laughs) at that time and I really wanted to be a founder. I really saw myself as a founder and I really couldn't wait to be a founder again. So um, my time at Airbnb was fantastic in that I learned from really great people. They were a growing company. They had like, you know, world-class um, like, you know, people and and I would say like best practices um, across the board in terms of how they were running the company and a great culture. So I just learned so much there. But the time that I was there, I think, was um, also like very much tainted with my desire to like want to start something again because that's just how I that was just my identity at the time, and I think that that is definitely something that I feel like as I've grown since like in just an age since then I look back and I think that I didn't need to be like rushing to start something again that I could have like really been more present while I was there and and a bit less um, it you know itching to move on. But you know I moved on and I that's when I started instrumental so. A lot of great things have happened since then. But yeah, it was interesting to be there with this feel when when my basically my whole identity, my whole current career to that till that point was to be my own startup founder. And I could just imagine you like sketching ideas out on a pad, go home late into the night trying to come up with that idea. What was about instrumental? Where, where did the sort of light bulb moment come for that that you would decide to to leave Airbnb and and and, and go for it? Yeah, I feel like a lot of things in my life, at least, it's kind of, it's like a, a lot of serendipity. Um, I met my co-founder, who is now my wife, um, and met her just totally personally. And she came from the space. Her name is Angela. And she was pairing up with another person that she knew, Catherine, who was also from the space, from the nonprofit space. And they were the, the domain experts that were able to sniff out the pain point uh, initially and they, I was just advising Angela on the side as she was starting to build her first tech company. Uh, she had no experience um, in that in that world before, and so um, they went through a couple of different iterations 
before I got involved. And then even after I got involved, we went through a couple of different iterations until we, I would say at the end of 2018, really landed on what Instrumental is today. And so you were seen as a sort of technical co-founder? Was that the, the, the skill set you brought? Yeah, I would say product and technology, like I was that co-founder and and they both focus more on um, the the like revenue um, side of the business. And to be to differentiate yourselves, because it's not like there weren't or there aren't solutions that maybe have similarities. What was the what was sort of the unique selling point or the unique product point for you guys at that point? What did you want to do that different to what everyone else was doing? Yeah, well, I would say the very first place that we started was around this idea of matching you to grants. And, you know, it was just an, it was just a hypothesis. Like we didn't know for sure, but we would put these kind of um, calls out and we would say, Hey, does anybody need help getting matched to grants? It's a, it's a service that we're offering just as tests. And we would get back like a flood of responses. And so um, especially me, because I was like new to the nonprofit space and new to the, this world overall, I was not sure how much of a pain point it was. I'm not sure exactly what, what the downsides of these other tools and databases are. But when we would put out these calls and get such an, an such a uh, high demand, it it helped me see that there was something here. And what we did initially, which I think is really interesting, and it's definitely something that YC Y Combinator is a um, big proponent of, is we did a, a lot of things that don't scale. And so the first thing we did to actually match people with grants is we matched them to grants by hand. So. Um, Angela and Kat were from the space, so that we would take a nonprofit, a you know, project that they had in mind, a program that they had in mind, and we would do like hours of research, and we would actually find them like great, perfect matches, and we would email those back to them. And eventually, we built up our own homegrown like database on a spreadsheet that was like pretty robust. Um, and then eventually, we ended up automating that into an algorithm. I like to say that we automated Kat's brain. Um, <laughs> and created an algorithm out of that. Uh, yeah. But um, it was very manual in the beginning. Wow. And so that MVP, if you like, so doing all that manual piece, how long did that last for? And, and how hard was the automation? Yeah, I don't think it lasted that long in the grand scheme of things, maybe like just a few months. Um, it was really to prove that there was like a viable business here that people would pay for this because we were charging for that. And in terms of the automation process, that probably took like a summer. Like that was like a big focus of what we did our summer of during Y Combinator. We would come up with, you know, an initial um, set of results through an algorithm. Kat would look at those results. She would mark which results she thought she should be seeing, which ones she thought she shouldn't be seeing. And we would figure out based on that feedback, how we need to adjust the algorithm. And we probably did that like, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times until Kat would look at the results and she would say, yeah, these are this is like actually what I want to see. And so one of the big differences in that was that we were being very opinionated with the results that we were showing. We were making a lot of assumptions that came from a domain experts. We weren't just showing you things that fit your search criteria and allowed and let you like just kind of sort and filter. We actually were trying to truly recommend the best fits for you at the top of that list. Because the size of the opportunity is huge, right? So, I, and I've I've picked this this figure up. You can shoot it down if you like. But four hundred billion given each year, like that sounds like an incredible amount of money. Yeah, an incredible amount of money. And overall, in the the foundation um, giving space has been just growing every year since like twenty twelve or twenty thirteen, I think. Um, so it's definitely an increasing um, source of revenue for nonprofits. Phenomenal. And so. You're in Y Combinator, you've got this seed funding, you're developing, like how big a decision was it to go into business with your with your wife, with your partner? 
Well, she was my girlfriend at the time. And I think it felt pretty like organic and natural. It didn't actually end up feeling like a huge decision. Um, and I think we were both, you know, I guess it kind of showed us in, in some ways that we are, we are great partners. We both are very ambitious. We both really love the future and, and technology. So we didn't give it a ton of thought. <laughs> Maybe we should have, but after we got engaged, this is like fast forwarding to like 2018, 2019, we decided at that point it would be better to separate our work life and our personal life more. So we, d- we don't work together day to day anymore, although Angela's still on the board. And that that feels good. That's made a difference to home life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's good to, it was good for us to, um, so she's still on the board. She's still like actively kind of, I would say like a very much culturally involved and she helps with planning and things like that. But I think day to day it was, it has been nice to have more diversity of like things that we're talking about, problems that we're, that we're thinking about, um, just like what's happening in our day. That's been good for us. And there's some, there's some stats out there where, um, you know, it's much harder to raise startup capital if you're if you're a female, if you're a woman. Do you think things have changed? You know, even since 2015. Like, what um, you know, what are you seeing in terms of um, ability to back women t- to deliver a you know and scale and grow a business? I guess I have an interesting perspective in that, like, I don't raise money anymore. Right, we're profitable. We don't need to raise money, and we don't operate the business as if we will ever need to raise money. So since 2016, since that, since that last round, we we haven't been out there on the market. So I can't speak directly in terms of how things have changed. I I do think that I've seen some stats recently that it actually hasn't changed that much if you look at the overall percentage of VC dollars that are going to female founders. But I could could be wrong on that. But that's I remember reading that somewhere. How much um, public speaking do you do? Obviously, you're talking to me on this podcast, but how how out there and and sort of comfortable are you? You know, leading your brand and and being the kind of point of contact is it something that comes naturally to you? Um, yeah, I th- I would say I feel pretty comfortable with it. I um, spent a lot more time with my first company, being out in conferences and pitch competitions, and just like really being a very public presence. And I think I kind of intentionally don't do that as much with instrumental. I like have, I want to make sure that I'm focusing like all, you know, all my time where it is the most valuable. And oftentimes it's like, you know, in the business, just like making sure we're growing a week over week and making sure I'm doing what I can there. Um, but, you know, for example, this podcast and we're doing kind of a campaign um, to, to have me do more public speaking and, and do more brand building. And I'm very happy to do that. Have you found your sort of leadership journey from, you know, just a few of you all really focused on getting something off the ground and, and proving the concept to, you know, leading people um, and, and growing a profitable company? Have you changed as a leader? What What's your style, your leadership style? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest change that I think most, you know, people would say happens once you get past a certain stage is that the things that really made me really effective going from zero to one are just not going to be the things that make that help the business overall when we're going from like one to 100. And namely it's that when you're just getting started, when I was, when we were just getting started, it was really important for me to like just be a, an all-star and like all different, an all-star executor, an individual contributing executor um, where, and just like to do as much as possible myself we didn't have the luxury of like hiring, you know, 10 people. So it was just, it was all about what the founders can do. That was like the limiting factor of how 
of the company scaling and the company growing. And the other thing was that we were all, you know, 100% focused on just getting to product market fit, um, just doing rapid feedback, taking rapid feedback from our customers and making those changes into the product. And now, yeah, all of my all of my problems are around people and making sure that everyone knows like the overall goals and the direction of the company, making sure people know um, why they're working on those and um, making sure that people feel like they're set up for success and they have enough like structure and definition in their in their job to be successful while also having feeling empowered for them to basically figure out really challenging problems themselves. Are you infinitely positive person? Like do you every day do you feel sort of glass half full? I think that I am pretty optimistic. And and like uh, yeah, I would say that's true. How do you feel when COVID hit and the world sort of was turned upside down. Was that, that do you look back at that time and, and um, you know, did it lead to sleepless nights when you're thinking about the business and thinking about your team and your responsibilities? Yeah. I, you know, I would say that the other thing that's maybe, I guess like the way that I am is I, I don't have like huge high highs and huge low lows. And when some, like, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I wasn't like I wasn't having sleepless nights, but we did, you know, we applied for a PPP loan because I was not sure. And it seemed like it was something we should do just in case. And there was certainly um, a wave of like cancellations that we got from our customers. So there was reason to feel like there might be cause for concern. However, the good thing about the way that we've run Instrumental so far is that we don't have any one customer that pays us like a majority of our revenue, for instance. It's pretty diversified across our customer base. So we would really have to see like a huge like um, like percentage of our customers cancel for that to have been like a, a, a mega, mega problem. And luckily that didn't happen. And in fact, like the op- kind of the opposite ended up happening where a, a lot of nonprofits, you know, nonprofits are working from home, nonprofits deprioritize other types of fundraising avenues and prioritize fundraising from grants. And you know, they didn't. They might not have felt comfortable going after individuals like me and you because individually we were suffering. Um, but foundations, especially, really um, opened up their coffers and um, were giving funds in a more expedited way. And so we were able to um, support a lot of nonprofits that were going to be working from home for the first time and going to be going after just like prioritizing grants now. And and your tool was you know there and and available. Um, good timing and and it helped to you guys to grow faster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like from a, it was overall net positive from from our business perspective. On a personal level, where do you draw your inspiration from? So you, you said you don't get really low, you don't get really high, but um, you know, when when you feel insp- uh, particularly inspired, where does that typically come from? Do you read a lot, listen to a lot, draw on on people around you? Yeah, I think it comes from. It, so I'm like I think de- you know deeply a product person, and when I see. And this is what's kept me going with instrumental, even when like going the growing was rough, like in the early days, it would see the the way that customers would like really light up when they would use our product. Uh, that really got me to that, like just got me can help me move forward. And like that's still the thing that is most inspiring to me today. It's like when I actually see what successful customers are saying, what customers are saying they can do now because of our tool. Yeah, and and like especially that they're that they're able to find the tool like easy to use, that they're able to f- integrate the tool into their like day-to-day workflow and find it actually like a must-have. Um, I feel like that's the most inspiring to me. And what do you do to in your downtime? What do you do to relax? 
Yeah, definitely trying to do that more. <laughs> um, I would say we move, we live in Berkeley. It's a, it's a beautiful part of the country. So um, lots of walks and hikes and um, kind of outdoorsy things, hang out with friends, read, uh, write. I haven't been meditating recently, but um, definitely uh, that has been a big part of my life. Looking ahead to the future for yourself and for Instrumental, what is the sort of next two years, five years, 10 years, what would you like it to look like? Yeah, I would say that, um, as I was saying in the, in the beginning, I think that the muscle that we've built at Instrumental that can bring about um, like highly effective, easy to use software is something that I'd like to use in more than just one use case. Like right now we're focused on institutional fundraising and that's really um, been going very well. And, and it's like a uniquely underserved a part of the um, nonprofits workflows. And there's still a ton for us to build there, especially around, I would say, like the tracking component of grants. Uh, we started off on the prospecting side and matching you to grants, and we've done a lot of really cool things there. There's like more for us to do on the tracking. Um, but I would like to see us expand beyond um, institutional fundraising into other arenas, as well as potentially even expanding our customer base. There are a lot of um, other types of customers that can benefit from tools like what we built, um, like schools and government agencies and that are already knocking on our doors that, that we don't currently serve. So I'd like us to see us expand in that capacity as well. So yeah, finding a, a company name is, is often difficult. How did, how did instrumental come about in, in particular the spelling? Cause the spelling is a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's instrument and then the letter L.com. And it's kind of funny because my first company was fondue without the E and funny thing about fondue without the E is I used to tell people it's fondue without the E and like 60% of people would say what E. So I would I stopped saying that. So that was that was a bit easier. Instrumental without the A is a bit harder for people to get. Um, but um I think there was already a company that had that correct spelling. And um I, my, Angela was the person who actually originally came up with the name and we were trying to she was trying to come up with the name that at that time we were focused on in the science and academia world. And so instrument was a word that was uh, one that she was interested in. And of course she wanted to imply that we would be so valuable that we would be instrumental and so that was a good kind of double meaning for us yeah and and that's stayed as an aspiration all the way through uh, do you remember how much the url cost oh i don't remember it wasn't expensive it, it went probably was a couple hundred dollars at, at most like a couple thousand dollars yeah and for those listening how do they find you how do they access your platform yeah, so it's it's easy. It's just www.instrumental.com, spelled instrument, and then the letter L.com. We have a 14-day free trial. You can get started right from the website. You don't even need to have a credit card. And so at the very least, if you try us out, you'll come away with some, hopefully, uh, opportunities that you can pursue. And then for listeners, we also have a discount code. If you were to move forward with a subscription after your trial, it's purposefully pod50. And I can, I can send you that so you can send it out as well. Wonderful. I'll put it in the show notes. And ex- excited to be part of that journey as as the leader. Like you're looking, to, you know, to stay at the helm. Oh yeah, that's 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 the plan. Fantastic. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me on purposely. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.